0: Once upon a time, there was an enchanted book, filled with hundreds of little plots, applied examples and linear regressions, the prettiest creature that was ever seen. Its authors were excessively fond of it, and its readers loved it even more. This magical book had a nice blue cover made for it, and everybody aptly called it Regression and Other Stories. As every good fairy tale, this one had its share of villains, the traps where statistical methods fall and fail you, terrible confounders lurking in the dark, the ill-measured data that haunts your inferences. But once you defeat these monsters, you'll be able to think about, build, and interpret regression models. As you probably understood, this episode will be filled with stories. Stories about linear regressions, of course, and here to narrate these marvelous statistical adventures are Andrew Gilman, Jennifer Hale and Aki Vetare, the authors of a brand new book, Regression and Other Stories. Andrew is a professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University. He works on a lot of topics, including why campaign polls are so variable while elections are so predictable, police stops in New York City, the statistical challenges of estimating small effects, and methods for surveys and experimental design. Jennifer is the Professor of Applied Statistics at NYU. She develops methods to answer causal questions related to policy research and scientific development. In particular, she focuses on situations in which it is difficult or impossible to perform traditional randomized experiments, or when study designs are complicated by missing data or hierarchically structured data. Finally, Aki is an Associate Professor in Computational Probabilistic Modeling at Aalto University, Finland. His main research interests are Bayesian probability theory and methodology, especially probabilistic programming, inference methods, model assessment and selection, and non-parametric models. In this episode, Jennifer, Andrew, and Aki will tell us why they wrote this book, who it is for. They also give us their 10 tips to improve your regression modeling. We also talked about the limits of regression and about going to Mars. Oh, and I have another good news for you until October 31st, 2020, you can go to cambridge.org and buy the book with a 20% discount by entering the promo code GOODBAISION2020 upon checkout. That's GOODBAISION2020. All the details are in the show notes. That way, you'll make up your own stories before going to sleep and dream of a world where we can easily generalize from sample to population and where multi-level regression with post-stratification is a bliss. This... Is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 20, recorded July 1st, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore andora, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil that app do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private Learn Based Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? Is someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow mostly I'm watching eyes widen Maybe cause my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming How would I know unless i I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men, dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Flagler. Hey guys! Before listening to Jennifer, Aki and Andrew, I wanted to take a moment and thank my brand new supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full posterior tier or higher. So a big thank you to Alan O'Donnell and Mark Armsby. Hope I didn't mispronounce your name guys and I wanna say this really makes a difference, it helps me pay for the editing and maybe later for more shows. I'm really grateful, please keep your feedback coming in the LBS Slack channel and now let's talk about linear regressions. Jennifer Hill, Andrew Gullman, Akivetari, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you for taking the time. It's a dream team for a very special episode. This episode is special and completely new, actually, on the podcast, so thanks for taking part in this experiment it's going to be a panel discussion on your new book, Regression and Other Stories. This means we won't talk about your background here, like in classical episodes. So I'm a bit sad about that. But let's say that it's a good opportunity for you to come back on the show and do a one-on-one episode. So first, I'd like to ask you how you three met. Maybe first, Jennifer and Andrew, how did you guys meet? Do you remember?
2: I got my PhD at Harvard in 1990 in statistics, and Jennifer got her PhD in 2000 from the same advisor. So we knew each other through that academic connection.
1: I think we met when I was a grad student because Andrew came back to give a talk. And I think I was like part of the group of students that went to lunch with him or something. That's the first time I remember Mm. meeting Andrew. Yeah.
0: Were you already working on Bayesian methods, Jennifer, or did Andrew draw you into that field at the time?
1: I guess I was already doing Bayesian stuff because of the nature of the department. Harvard Stats at that point was pretty Bayesian. So yeah, I was already pretty inculcated. (laughs)
2: Jennifer was doing research on causal inference. She has a background in policy research. Since I've met her, that's affected how I've thought about these things, because I have worked on some causal problems, but Jennifer's attitude is that every applied problem is fundamentally causal. And even if you think you're being descriptive, you're really being causal, you just don't feel like talking about it. I don't have (laughs) such an extreme view, but I I have a Jennifer emulator in my brain. And when I have a causal question that I'm stuck on, I run it through the Jennifer emulator. So we say, what would Jennifer do?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Terrifying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about this causal inference part because there are a bunch of chapters dedicated to this topic, actually, in the book. But first, Aki, maybe tell us how you met the rest of the group. I was already teaching
3: using Bayesian data analysis. Andrew is the first author, and Andrew had blogged positively about my research, and then I had opened it for travel. And 2012, I spent one month in New York and had enough meetings to convince Andrew that I know about cross-validation that much that goes in processes that later he asked help with Bayesian data analysis, third edition I did have some video calls where Jennifer also was related to using Gaussian processes in causal analysis, and Ben Goodrich was also in those calls. But personally, we met just a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, it might have been at that dinner that was celebrating Andrea at Columbia. I think you were at my table at that dinner.
2: I checked my email. So the first email I have from Aki is from 2005. Oh. He wow. was uh, commenting on my manuscript on prior distributions for variance parameters in hierarchical models. And he had done some work with cross-validation and he had some problems with the prior that I was using. And then he also said that I had misspelled his name in the paper.
3: <laughs> I did not remember that one, but...
0: Yeah. Well, that's a collector. Maybe we should put that email in the show notes or something like that, <laughs> or frame it, you know.
3: <laughs> Too bad that it took from 2005. Yeah, seven years before we met.
2: Oh, actually, no, I found an earlier email. It was from February 2004. I guess I had sent you this. Thanks for a very interesting paper. And then I had a mistake in one of the formulas that he pointed out. I missed a minus sign.
0: Thanks, Aki, for uh, this correction (laughs) and this minus sign that was forgotten. (laughs) Now I'm going to ask you a question that will bring you even more in the past, because I want to ask you if you remember the exact year you were introduced to Bayesian methods. And if you had to describe this method with one word, which word
2: would it be? I guess when I was in college, I took a statistics class and they briefly mentioned Bayesian methods. I don't know if that really counts as being exposed. I guess the time I was first really exposed was in 1985 when I took a class with Don Rubin at Harvard, and then he introduced us to these methods.
0: Yeah. I think that qualifies more because otherwise it's just, you know, passive exposure, less active. (laughs) And what about you, Jennifer?
1: So it would have been probably my second year. I started in 1995. So yours was earlier, Andrew, if you were a student, right? It was in the 80s. 1985,
2: yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So it was probably 1996 or 1997, something like that, because we all took the Bayesian data analysis course with the BDA book, which we (laughs) referred to as the Bible in grad school. (laughs) And my word would be flexible.
0: Oh, nice. Oh yeah, Andrew, you didn't tell me what word you'd use to describe Bayesian methods if you had one word to choose.
2: I couldn't really think of a word. When we wrote Bayesian data analysis, I didn't like the word Bayesian because it's not descriptive. It's sort of named after a person. So we talked about giving like, statistics using probability models, something like that. But then we just thought you have to go with the B word because it sells itself. Do you like the inverse probability denomination? I don't know. Not really. It's just probability. It's not inverse. I mean, I think that's a weird expression. Mm, I agree, but I had to ask. (laughs) So in
0: 1997,
3: I was doing my master's thesis on using neural networks to predict flow through industrial pump, pumping paper pulp. Mm. And then I read Christopher Bishop's book, which had like two pages on Bayesian inference. And I got interested in and then read Redford like, Niels, David McKay's book, and I guess quite soon also Bayesian Data Analysis, first edition.
0: And what would be your word? Laplacian. Oh, nice. There's uh, one paper
3: discussing that, how the Bayesian should be called and listing all possible tourists who have contributed more than Bayes did.
0: Yeah, I like that. Let's talk about the book now, actually. So the book is called Regression and Other Stories. It's not out now, but it's going to be when people listen to this episode. So why did you guys want to write this book and who is it written for?
2: Well, Jennifer and I had our previous book, Applied Regression Using Multi-Level Models. That was like two books because it had regular regression and then multi-level models. And then we felt there are all these regression courses where they don't use our book because they think it's the multi-level modeling book. So we felt we needed a regression book and we probably should have just split it off right then and got rid of it. But instead, we tried to made the mistake of wanting to improve it. So then we ended up rewriting it and putting in a lot of things. But there's going to be a second book, Advanced Regression Multi Level Models, where Jonah Gabry and Ben Goodrich are going to be co-authors, too.
0: Oh, that's, so that's
2: a scoop. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> it's not a secret. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this was supposed to be the first half of our book, but then we added a lot of stuff.
0: And so who is it written for? Maybe Jennifer or Aiki, you're going to take that one?
1: I think it's written for nearly anyone who has a basic stat background. It's not written for people who only care about theorems, I guess. But it's written for people who really want to apply things. They don't want to just read about it and understand theoretical properties, but they're using data. They want to think hard about how they fit models to data and what happens in practice that you don't always read about in a textbook.
3: And I think it also is a great book for people who are already familiar with Bayesian and even advanced. When I first read Andrews university earlier book, I really enjoyed how it was presenting how to think about modeling. And how to think about causal analysis. So, I think it's valuable not just for beginners, but also
2: in a later phase, how to think about these things. But we had to walk a, a bit of a tightrope with the Bayesian stuff. I think when Jennifer can correct me, maybe, but my impression is when we wrote the first book, we really weren't thinking of it as particularly Bayesian. We were thinking of it as classical statistics. And you can use, like, Bayesian ideas to propagate uncertainty. I think now we do think of what we're doing as being more Bayesian, especially because when you start adding more predictors to the model, then you'll want to regularize them. In the meantime, Jennifer had done a bunch of work on machine learning and causal inference problems where you're adjusting for many predictors. And whether you want to call it Bayesian or regularization, you really have to go in that direction. So in our earlier book, I think we thought of the simulation as kind of just a way of conveniently calculating uncertainties for nonlinear outcomes. But I think now we're thinking of it that way. At the same time, we recognize that most people who will want to learn and use this material don't want to use Bayesian methods. They think of Bayesian as a problem. So it's not in the title, and we put in the introduction in various places, we explain how, like, if you really want to do something non-Bayesian here, this is what you can do, and this is how we interpret it. So we're kind of much more explicit about the connections than we were in the first edition.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have to say, I, I had the chance to read the, the intro and the first chapter. And, and indeed, there are some gentle nudges explaining the difference between the two frameworks, how the book is going to explain that to readers, and how the code is run, how the models are run, which are run with the BRMS, right? Mainly. So it's a Bayesian framework, but you also explain if you don't want to do that, you can do that with this and this in R. So
2: it's the run with RStanR mm. mostly. Oh, yeah, very, very interesting. And
0: now I want to ask you a more about uh, more about regression (laughs) because it's what the book is about and what is regression for. But in the annex of the book, you wrote Annex B, which is 10 quick tips to improve your regression modeling. So I think this will answer this question. And I thought it would be interesting to run down this list to give listeners an idea of the learnings and the wisdom they'll get in this book. So the first tip is think about variation and replication. So what do you mean by that?
2: So I think that usual statistics textbooks, including our own, tend to treat analyses as one of a kind. Like, Here's some data, here's the analysis, this is what we do, here's the summary. And in real life, almost always what you're doing is embedded within a larger process. So in that way, we're very frequentist in our perspective. So the first tip is think of what you're doing as part of your larger workflow. You're going to be fitting many different models. I think that comes in one of the later tips. You'll be applying your procedure to new data sets. This is part of a larger process. Don't get too lost in the details of what you're getting from one particular data set. Don't get too obsessed about whether this particular data set gives you a conclusive result or not, because ultimately, if it's something you're interested in, you're going to be replicating anyway. So don't get too hung up on that one data set.
0: I see how it's related also to the second tip that we're going to talk about in a minute, and also to one other tip you have. And also one chapter I think is dedicated to that, which is to fit the model to multiple data sets. So it's an interesting perspective, I guess. So the second tip is to, quote, forget about statistical significance, unquote. Can you tell us why, Aki? Andrew has
3: written on, on this topic much more than I, but I agree completely. The first problem is that it's dichotomizing, just turning something more informative to just two choices, that it's significant or not significant. Yeah. But it's also trying to figure out, like, is the effect zero or not? But in many real applications, it's very unlikely that they are exactly zero. And then it's kind of strange why we would try to force it, the thinking in that way. Of course, I've been also favoring this predictivistic approach. Is something useful for making predictions? And of course, then some small effects, they can be away from zero, but still they are not helping in predicting future events where there's a lot of other
0: uncertainties involved. It was super interesting to read about that actually in the book. And I guess that's also how you guys managed to introduce also some of the Bayesian structure and framework, because all this idea of not trying to artificially dichotomize the analysis and the results. And also there is a really super interesting section in the book. I think it was an economics study in Mexico or something like that, which was reporting huge effect sizes, but with a confidence in interval between 2% and 98%, something like that. And so you take the opportunity of uh, talking about this study and explaining what the dangers can be. Can you talk more about that?
2: Oh, that was a study in Jamaica of early childhood intervention study, where they did some things with the parents of four-year-olds, and I think there are 130 kids in the study, and then they followed them up 20 years later and looked at their earnings and they found that the kids who had the treatment had 42% higher earnings than the kids who didn't have the treatment. But it was a very noisy estimate. and There were other things going on with the study. A higher percentage of the kids who had the treatment happened to have moved out of the country, and they were earning more. And there were some selection issues in what got studied. Our argument there was, I can't remember what we said in the book. I've written about it in other places. There's no real reason to think the effect is 42%. In that case, because the estimate had a standard error of about 20%, and it's only going to get published if it's statistically significant. So it's sort of designed so that you're either going to report nothing or you're going to report an effect of at least 40%. So then when you find that it's 42%, it's not telling you that much. That number is not particularly informative. So in that case, the process of selection on statistical significance affects your estimate. But we don't talk about it that much in the book. We just try to use good practice where we can.
1: Well, we also explicitly removed mentioning. In the first version of the book, we did talk about statistical significance. And we took it entirely out. Jennifer never
2: liked it even then. She didn't like it, but she let me keep it in. But this time, you should see the fights we had over the causal inference chapters. It was just like the emails were going back and forth. Like, she's much tougher now. But at the time, I went through and took out all... I think the only place it's in is like in quotes where we say this would be called statistically significant. And then I also took out all the places where we say we control for something in the regression and changed it to we adjust for, because you're only controlling if you really control it. If you control the temperature by setting the temperature in the factory to 30 degrees, then you're controlling the temperature. But if you do an analysis where you condition on the temperature, that's not controlling. So that was another case. I'm sure we missed a few things, but we really tried to keep the language clean on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, clearly, I admired how you guys talked about that because it's your own thin ice. Each time people are talking about statistical significance, p-values and so on, it can be kind of an emotional topic and it's not what you want. And it's not the most interesting part of the statistical debate.
2: Let me say it's not just a matter of, oh, yeah, we know what to do. We just have to explain it clearly. It's that we don't know what to do. Really. So, I think maybe the book should have a section like all the things that we don't know, not just the things that we left out that we know, but we don't know. like when you include. We have a little section on when you have regression with many predictors, how you want to be using strong priors. That's good stuff. But even if you only have one predictor, you should be using a strong prior. Like the idea or two predictors, like whenever you have a situation where your posterior uncertainty is large. Like, or a situation where your coefficient estimate is not more than two standard errors away from zero or whatever. When the standard error is large compared to the coefficient estimate, that implies you have a lot of uncertainty. And often there's a bit of prior information available. And we still remain in a kind of default non-Bayesian setting where we only add priors when we feel like you really have to. So I don't think what we do is the best in the book. I think it's better than other books on regression, but I still think that our priors are too weak. We're too loath to put these in. If you just sort of run regressions with the default priors, it's better than doing plain old least squares, but we're still not really regularizing enough. I mean, we're hoping to kind of bang some of that back in the second volume. And there's also a question of how much can be done in this volume because people really do want the classical regression. They're not yet really asking to put in priors everywhere. But the statistical significance thing is related. The very fact that you're comparing something to zero and saying if it's near zero, we're going to treat it as zero implies a certain prior attitude. And we have not really fully processed this ourselves. So as I said, it's not just a matter of trying to explain it clearly, we've really been wrestling with a lot of these things and writing the book has been a good excuse for us to try to figure some of this stuff out.
0: Yeah, this is super interesting, but I have to move on to the other tip, which is the third one which is perfect for a podcast because it's about graphs. (laughs) So yeah, it is graph the
2: relevant and not the irrelevant. I think part of it is just taking the most important part is graph the relevant. So take graphs seriously. I think in a lot of applied work, you'll see some graphs of the raw data Then people fit the model and then they start graphing the fitted model and they never get back to the data. Or they might graph like influence plots and residual plots and things like that. Like certain things are kind of okay. But I feel very strongly it's a good idea to have a graph that shows your fitted model and the data in the same graph. And there there are certain application areas where it's traditional to do that. And that's good, like regression discontinuity analysis. For some reason, they have a tradition of doing that. But in general, first, there's not enough graphing, I think. So we put a lot of graphs in the book. And second, in regression textbooks in particular, they'll focus on certain diagnostic graphs, which are fine for what they are, but they're not the key point. Like diagnostics are good. But then if you don't have a problem with your model, you don't need to present the diagnostics, but you still want to understand the data. So understanding the data is kind of a separate thing from diagnosing flaws in the model. And in traditional books, they don't really get to that.
1: I would add that I've learned more about graphing from Andrew probably than anyone else. And I, for a long time, for years, had a printout of help graphics par. So I had all the graphics parameters in base R printed out. It was just, you know, stuck to the side of my wall so that I could easily reference. And I pushed back against ggplot, which I know has a lot of nice features, but there's very little you can't do in base R if you don't want to. So that's a little bit of a side point. I think that people tend to make graphs because that's what everyone in their field does. Like, oh, everyone makes these bar charts or these whatever. And then we just do that. And there's very little thought that goes into, what do I actually want to know? What question am I actually trying to answer? What am I trying to see in this plot? Because people just kind of default into, and there's not a lot of training around all of those issues. So I think you almost have to like reinvent the wheel. You have to teach people to what is it when people have been conditioned in a certain way, right? And you have to decondition them out of that and into thinking for themselves. And people really want to follow a formula and not think for themselves. So teaching people how to do that is non-trivial.
0: Yeah, that's what you guys wrote in the book in this chapter. I think yeah, it was something like, don't make a graph because it's conventional to make it. Make a graph because it's useful in your analysis and be prepared to talk about that graph and to explain it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I love these kind of messages. Uh, I like yeah. to also add, human visual system is very efficient in
3: seeing shapes and strange things. And so plotting, graphing, raw data or not yet modeled things is very useful kind of complementary to the modeling that you might see something unexpected. But of course, at the same time, human visual system is very efficient of seeing shapes, even if there's not actual any pattern. So we can't rely just on graphing raw data. So that's why we need also models. But the combination is then more efficient than either alone. I'm also myself a visual person that I think also often these maths and stats Visually. So I also like then making a lot of plots and then just hoping that others would get what I try to convey with those.
0: Yeah, this is super interesting. And this chapter is is really good. I loved it. And so the next tip, tip number four, is uh, I love this one because interpreting a regression can can be more complicated than we think. And this one is interpret regression coefficients as comparisons. So can you tell us why, Jennifer?
1: Yeah, this is my favorite. So I feel like most intro, stat or regression courses dutifully tell the students that correlation is not causation, and they caution against interpreting regression coefficients causally. But then the language that they typically provide or suggest for interpreting regression coefficients is almost always inherently causal so let's say you should say a change in one unit of x is associated with an increase of beta units in y or they won't even use the word associated but you know the word associated doesn't actually take away the causal language in the rest of the statement it's still quite causal so my students don't love it but i force them to say things like if i'm comparing two groups that are different by one year of education, I might expect to see differences in outcomes of blah 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 on average, right? It's more cumbersome and it doesn't feel quite as comfortable to them, but it's more honest. So typically what we have when we have data and regression is a snapshot. You know, we're not actually seeing people change over time. Sometimes we are, and then there's a whole different story around that. We've got a bunch of people, some of them did this, some of them did that. And the regression coefficient is comparing this situation versus that. It's not talking about what would happen if I move someone from here to there. Also, the comparison also helps students, I think, understand a bit about more about the linearity assumption, right? So when I think about comparisons across subgroups that are contiguous, do I really want to think that the differences in average outcomes are the same across all of those comparisons? Because that's what linearity is saying. Maybe that's not right, and if so, maybe I don't want to think about this as a linear model, or I want to incorporate that covariate in a different kind of way.
2: I think this, Jennifer and I are really like rebelling against our teachers because it's a very descriptive way of saying regression is an operation on the data, and it's your estimating predictions. It's like a sampling theory approach, way of thinking about things here. But I think the way we learned it was much more kind of deterministic, like the treatment effect is this. The purpose of the regression is to estimate the treatment effect. And that's one application. So in the causal chapters, we talk about when that's appropriate. But if you're writing a book about causal inference, you'd focus on that. But if you're writing a book about regression, then you have to say regression is this tool for estimating average differences. And there are certain, and sometimes if you work really hard, that can align with estimating a causal effect.
0: Yeah, this is definitely super interesting. Plus, I think it also gives people a good basis because when you go to generalized linear models and then there is the distortion between the parameter space and the outcome space, it becomes even more tricky to interpret the regression coefficients. So if you're already quite clear about how to do that in a normal linear uh, regression, then it will be easier to transition to more complicated cases. Yeah. And uh, so let's go to the fifth tip, actually, which is to understand statistical methods using fake data simulation. And it's really something you are emphasizing throughout the whole book and... So can you tell us why it is uh, so important, Andrew?
2: Oh, yeah. In some sense, this is just very fundamental. If you think of statistical theory, like all of statistical theory is kind of a shortcut to fake data simulation. Or conversely, you don't need to know any statistical theory as long as you're willing to do fake data simulation on everything. I mean, statistical theory can give you understanding, but fundamentally, you want to understand the properties of the methods. So that's a kind of general thing, but in practice... It's really important because in practice, often our methods don't work and you don't realize when you fit the method to real data, so you fit it to fake data. And and if you can't reconstruct your parameters from the fake data, it doesn't mean you have a bug in the code. It might just be that the model is very hard to fit, but then you'd want to learn that also.
0: Really love this idea and I think somewhere you're talking about the fact that often when you feed the model to real data and it doesn't work, you don't know if it's because of the data, because of the model or because of the computation. And then using fake data to fit the model can really give you hints about okay, so this works with fake data, so Maybe the phenomenon I'm trying to study has other latent phenomena that I didn't yet incorporate in the model or stuff like that. And and it can really facilitate this back and forth between the model and the conceptual thinking.
2: Well, actually, this idea has changed not just how I do statistics, but how I do science. I think it's now immoral to gather data without first simulating fake data and writing the code and fitting the model to the fake data. I've been involved in a lot of applied projects where we're just like, "Hey, let's gather some data and see what happens," and then we're surprised at all the uncertainties that result. Like, wow, those standard errors are really big. Who would have thought that? Well, maybe I would have thought it if I'd simulated the fake data and. Because to simulate, it's harder, right? So there's a reason why people don't do it. Right? The difference between fitting your model to data and simulating fake data, it's like the difference between playing SimCity and writing SimCity. To simulate fake data, you have to make assumptions about all of your effect sizes and all of your variances and correlations between your predictors and any model misspecification. That all has to be in there. And it's hard, it's unpleasant to make assumptions. It requires a kind of commitment commitment. But I think that's super important to do. It's very painful, but we probably should have even more fake data simulation than we have.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'd like to add. So Andrew talked about checking assumptions, and that's very important. In addition, of course, we have then also checking our inference code. It's much easier with fake data simulation. But it's also then there's one more philosophical point is that real data, we can get only observations With the real data, we never see the actual parameters, those latent values. And it's only by fake data simulation that we can actually compare what we've inferred about those unobservables to something what we know values they should get.
2: Well, you know, Aki, it wouldn't have killed you to have added that sentence section b. I so, I mean, if you had this great idea, you should have put that in. I would. I think that would have been helpful to readers. I'll put it in errata. Okay. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's also there somewhere in the book. I, I write something like that, which is if your model can't run and recover the true latent parameter with fake data, then it's almost sure it, it won't be able to do that with real data. So it's okay. You can add that to the right tab. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is already there. But it's true. I started to use this stuff in my modeling workflow. And it's true. It's super valuable because often I'm like, I'm lost. I don't know why the model doesn't fit. I don't know if it's because of the model, if it's because I need more data. So... When you have done your fake data simulation before, you know that if there is a problem, you can cross your checklist methodically, at least. It it doesn't mean you're going to get to the right model, get to something useful, but at least you can fail methodically, which is really valuable in statistics. Actually, something that's related a bit is uh, tip number six. And I think this one will be more familiar to listeners. And it is to fit many models. And there, I thought that, Aki, you could enlighten us about the utility of doing that.
3: So in specifically, the context of this book refers to having also continuum of models that you start probably with something quite simple, and then bit by bit, make it more complex. And this helps in that way that it's easier, first of all, make simple model, but it's also then easier to understand what that simple model can tell you about the data and the phenomenon. And then when you add more components, you are just then learning how adding these additional components change the situation so that you can change your learning to be incremental. That's how you all so prefer to learn anyway, bit by bit, building on top of more simpler ideas. And of course, another part of this fit many models can be understood in the context of if there's uncertainty about the correct model, it's just kind of integrating over the model space. And then whether we do it more formally or informally is another thing, but it's really can be strongly connected to the idealistic approach of integrate over all the uncertainty you have.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something very interesting to have and to implement in the regression workflow. And actually, the next tip, which is tip number seven, is something that I think goes hand in hand with what you just talked about, uh, Aki. And it's also something that you and Andrew often talk about. And so the tip is set up a computational workflow. So what can you guys tell us about that?
2: I feel like we've mostly covered it already, but maybe the one thing we haven't said is just be aware of what you're doing. Rather than thinking of it as like you're playing in the sandbox with your data, but like, think about there being a series of steps. So maybe start by looking at what you do with your data when you're doing analysis. Like just introspect a little bit. And then from there, think about what's missing.
3: I have more of a computer science background. I will also add that computational workflow. We really need to also understand limitations of computers. They have limited memory, limited speed, limited representation of numbers. And then also that workflow has to take into account what can fail. Like even like MCMC, theory says that if we run it infinite time, we get perfect results. We don't have infinite time and with the computers often it's really short time that we have. And these are then important part of the connecting these limitations to the workflow.
2: Well, I think also this can be annoying to people. Like they can say, oh, you know, when I just run least squares on the computer, I don't need to worry about it. But actually, you do. It's just that the problems come out somewhere else. So the workflow looks really smooth. It's just that they publish findings that don't replicate. That's too bad, right? Like, so it is more work to try to do things right. Hopefully it's work that reduces your labor somewhere else. There's somehow, there's nothing stopping people from doing simple, stupid stuff. It's just that the only thing that's stopping you would be you really don't want to get the wrong answer.
0: Jennifer, you wanted to uh, add
1: something. This is not news to anyone and everyone is saying it, but, you know, documenting everything, having a plan, making it reproducible and, you know, and not going on a treasure hunt, <laughs> which is hard. I think pre-analysis plans sometimes can be too constricting, right? And that you don't want to lose all the value of your data by saying, I'm only going to do these three things because that's what I said I was going to do. But then if you're doing beyond that or if being methodical about it, being thoughtful about it, tying it to theory, you know, making decisions before you do it about what you're gonna do, or at least like flow charts about, well, if this happens and that. I won't say I'm always perfect about it, but I'm trying to move myself in that direction. So that, you know, why did you do that? Oh, well, because of X, Y, and Z, as opposed to if I look back at things I did ten years ago, why did you do that? Oh <laughs> I guess it made sense at the time. Like that's not very satisfying or very scientific.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's something also I find interesting in the Bayesian framework in the sense that the priors and the fact that you have to take care about your computer and your sampler, as like he said, you have to lay down all these assumptions and write them down. And I find it really beneficial. And I see on the PMCT scores, for instance, where I try to answer listeners' questions, often people coming with huge hierarchical models and having like huge priors on completely non-informative priors on the hyper parameters, you know, like a normal 0, 100 on the population parameters. And so the sampler has really a hard time fitting this model. And the model takes a lot of time to sample if it samples at all. And then people are kind of lost because I, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. Then what I find interesting is that precisely you're going to have a hard time to run your model. You're Maybe the sampler won't even work and it will crash, but then it will force you to think about the priors for your hierarchical model. And in the end, you will have a hard time understanding why you have to do that, but you will walk out of that with a little bit more knowledge, I guess, about your model and about the phenomenon you're thinking about. So... science is hard, but also a good thing that it's hard. <laughs> I, I <guess. laughs> oh yeah, the tip number eight, I love it. My favorite is Jennifer's favorite too, which is the tip number four. But tip number eight, I like it because when I started learning patient statistics, and it's related to difficulties one can have with fitting a model, and it's about using transformations on your variable. And I really love that because when I started learning patient statistics, I would fit a model with non-transformed data and then a sample would crash and I wouldn't understand why. And then you transfer your data, you standardize them and they it runs. So it's really felt like a magic trick or the closest thing to a magic trick when I started. So I'm really curious about what you can tell us about that. Maybe Jennifer, if you want to start on that.
1: Sure. So I think this is part and parcel with the linearity assumption in linear regression, for instance. So when the assumptions of linear regression are taught, the linear piece tends to get short shrift or like equal as if it's equal to the other assumptions when, in fact, often it's the most important. In fact, it's so undervalued that often people say regression when they mean linear regression and don't even understand that there's a distinction there, like and one is a subset of the other. So we try to really emphasize that this can be a crucial assumption, particularly if you're not thinking about prediction, but you're thinking about interpreting your regression coefficients. In fact, actually, it's a pushback on this assumption that's motivated a huge amount of research in causal inference, like all the propensity score stuff is all you could frame as a pushback against linearity assumptions where they aren't appropriate. So transformations are often proposed. I hear students all the time talking about transformations as a way of making my data look normal or something. I don't care about that. What does it look like in relationship to the other variables? Does it help you satisfy the linearity assumption? That often ends up being more important. So I see the transformations as the least of what you can do to try to satisfy those assumptions. Sometimes it's more than that. If you care about prediction or if you're doing like missing data stuff and you really want to simulate data that look real, then it's actually about getting the distributions right as well. But this is a starting point towards really trying to flexibly model your data in a way that actually tries to mimic more closely what happens in real life, even though we're always approximating that fairly crudely.
0: Yeah.
3: I started with neural networks and Gaussian processes, and so I'm used to the model making transformations for me. (laughs) (laughs) So in that way, for me, it is sometimes seems strange that why we choose some specific transformation. Well, log transformation is well justified in some cases, but sometimes they seem a bit ad hoc for me. And I guess that in the next book, we can have more examples using nonlinear functions to take care of transformations automatically.
0: I can't wait to read this chapter but i have the idea of chapter three where you basically did a summary of some of the most useful transformations on the data like and talked about power law relationships about log log relationships and so on and it's really good to have that written down somewhere because sometimes you forget about that and reveal and it, it can be like super useful as you guys just said yeah We can go to tip number nine, which is mainly Jennifer's territory. Causal inference, different chapters in the book are dedicated to causal inference. And the tip here you guys have is do causal inference in a targeted way, not as a byproduct of a large regression. So I think there is a lot of of things to say here. Maybe Jennifer first, and I'm guessing Andrew will have interesting things to say there.
1: I guess my basic ethos is that if you want to answer a causal question, then you own it, right? Decide you want to, but someone told you you can't. So you run a regression or you do some modeling and you report a thing and then you say, but it's just an association. And then in your discussion, maybe you hint at a policy implication. (laughs) Like that to me is the worst of all possible worlds. I would far rather that people say, look, I'm going to own it. I want to do something causal. I, I would like to know the answer to it, but it's really hard. And so this is what I'm going to do. And here's where it falls short. And here are the assumptions I have to make. But if you're considered about it, then you can be really specific about what is your treatment variable? Does that make sense as a treatment variable? Is it manipulable? Who are we making inferences about? What is my estimate? And what is the context? And then what am I going to use as my identification strategy? What are the assumptions in my method or my design Do I think that they hold? If they're not holding, where would they fall down? Like, where are the the pressure points and where could I make this break? So if someone's going to do it in the future, they could maybe try to guard against that. Or if I'm going to do a sensitivity analysis, then I look at violations of that particular assumption. But if you own it, then it allows for this much richer exploration as opposed to this kind of half-assed, not really doing it, but I'm kind of doing it. And I know you're going to interpret it that way anyway, kind of strategy. Here in this particular tip, we're also highlighting the fact that if you do this regression and you're throwing at a bunch of variables and interpreting several of them causally, it, that violates a bunch of things at once because probably some are preceding others, et cetera. Like it's, if I want to map that to a randomized experiment where three treatments are simultaneously being randomized, it's probably just much farther from being true than the simple mapping between an observational study with one treatment and a randomized experiment.
0: Yeah, that's a hard topic and the guys have long discussions about that in the book. We can't go into a lot of details here, but uh, listeners will be able to read that. Andrew, I'm wondering if you have some stuff to say here.
2: Yeah, I wrote this section or this Tip in response or in reaction to often seeing in social science. So in political science or sociology or economics, people will have a published paper or a PhD thesis plan or research proposal, and they'll say, we have these hypotheses. This will have this effect, and this will have that effect, and this won't have an effect, and this blah, blah, blah. And then the culmination is a big regression where they read coefficients off. And so I felt like that doesn't work for reasons that Jennifer said. So if I want to estimate the effects of different treatments or interventions happening in different stages of the system, then I think you need to treat each question separately. I'm interested in this particular intervention, so let me do an experiment observational study on this. But let me estimate that. And now there's another thing you're interested in that gets its own set of comparisons. So, I mean, I could give you lots of examples just for a very simple example. There's a study where they were looking at factors that were supposed to affect whether a country went into a civil war or not. And so they had some big data set. Well, there's multi-level modeling issues because you have time series cross-sectional data, but I won't get into that. Say so they have some data on the outcomes, whether the country's in civil war, and then they have these different predictors. So I... I discussed it with them and I felt that at the very least, it's two models. One is what affects going into civil war or what predicts going into civil war. The second is what predicts the civil war ending. So those are two different problems and those require two different analyses. It's kind of Just a mathematical artifact that you happen to have a data set where things are coded as zero one. But that would be standard how people would do it. They would just kind of throw it in without matching that. So you want to start with that causal question and then from there try to shake it out. And the other problem I've seen kind of in a slightly different way is when social scientists want to estimate the effect of something and they have some identification strategy. They have a natural experiment and they'll use some method like an instrumental variables analysis or a regression discontinuity analysis. And they get kind of focused on the method without thinking that ultimately they're doing an observational study and they want to compare similar things. So people just include a single predictor because there's a discontinuity without including other predictors in the model that explain differences between the different units in their study. So it's a matter of taking it seriously. But people just generally don't. I think really the standard approach would be throw it in. And then if you'll ask students, they might say that there's some more sophisticated things out there, but they tend to be sophisticated methods which are still involving throwing all the data in then doing a path analysis or whatever. And that's not really the sophistication that we're looking for. We're really recommending a, a closer engagement with the subject matter.
0: Yeah, so you mean like not doing, I think what Richard McAereth calls causal salad, where you take all the variable you can find and just put them in the regression and say that you adjust or even worse control for all these parameters it's related to last tip on the list, which is tip number 10, which is, let me quote it, learn methods through live examples. And here, I'm wondering, how do you guys impart all of these methods and all of these learnings to your students, because you, you all three teach students? And I'm wondering, do you use mainly examples like you do in the book with uh, lots of examples, but then How do you manage to generalize from these examples to more general rules that people can follow, but also at the same time telling people that, oh, you know, each model should have some bespoke component to the case study. So how do you guys walk this fine line?
1: That's a great question. I could start if other people are okay with it. I'll talk about how I've changed how I teach causal inference in the past couple of years. You know, I used to just say, here's this other design and here are the assumptions and here's where you might use it. Example, move on. And I find that that kind of laundry list or cookbooky thing, it's helpful in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily help students when they're trying to figure out, they haven't been handed a data set that went along with week four of the class when they were studying this method, right? So what I'm trying to teach them are strategies for learning more about their data and how it maps to assumptions so that they can do it on their own. I've got two different homework tracks, but one is focused on the R users. And for the R users, for each design or method, they have to simulate data that map to that world. So what are data that would follow all the regression discontinuity assumptions? So generate data that look like that. And then what happens if we break them? if we break this assumption what are the implications for my data if we break that one right so it's a mix of i still do the other things as well but them having to construct a world and see how the methods react in that world i found has really deepened their understanding of the concepts and it gives them those simulation tools can be useful later on right if they are trying to see how a new method that they've never learned about works in a certain setting then they can use those tools to evaluate it on their own five years from now when they're getting a PhD or they are in a job somewhere.
0: Yeah, because you want to encourage more of a generative thinking kind of thing instead of a toolbox mindset. Aki, I'm curious about how you do that because you are more into the computer science side of things. So how do you do that in your classes?
3: One thing is using examples. The important part is the stories. People remember stories much better And then if they can, for example, later make a connection that, oh, this, what I now have, resembles previous example and they can remember the story, they probably remember also then better what had to be done in that story. So it's not, it's story about the data, but then the story continues with the analysis. So I'm using in the Bayesian data analysis course, the examples are from the book and some extra examples, but also then students eventually make their own project work and then at that phase they can then make that connection, how to generalize from these examples to their own data they are interested in and for which they have kind of chosen the background story for the data and how to continue with that, the analysis story.
1: I just want to quickly add on that reminds me that I completely agree with that. And that's why our program uses much more project-based work than exams, because I feel that students learn a lot more when they have the messy data around the problem that they care about than in some contrived thing that I could come up with in it exam.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting topic. And before hearing Andrew about that, because we've run down all the tips now, so I just want to remind listeners that until October 31st, if they go to cambridge.org and they use the promo code Bayesian twenty twenty which is quite fit. If they use Good Bayesian 2020 upon checkout, they get a 20% discount of regression and other stories. So go to Cambridge.org guys. And I'm curious, Andrew, how you teach all this generative modeling mindset in your classes. And also now that we talked about how to carefully use regression, I'm curious to know which are the
2: limits of regression? Well, I teach to political science students. They're very motivated already. Graduate students in political science, they want to solve problems, and so they are coming in with things that they care about. So it's not hard for me to motivate them for working on live problems. We said live problems rather than real data, because there's like real data can be real and, and kind of old and no longer live. Our book has a mix of examples, so we do have some examples that aren't really live anymore. They're, they're pretty old. Other examples are still of interest.
0: Yeah, that's true. I love all these examples, political science example, by the way, but it's just my opinion, but it was my major in grad school again with all these examples. (laughs) And actually, can you talk about the limits of linear regression? I'm curious, in your own work, when you guys are thinking, okay, here is maybe a case where I either have to be super careful with using regression or I can't use regression framework altogether in this case. When do you know that and what do you do then?
2: I always want to do the simplest possible thing that will work. But unfortunately, the simplest possible thing that works is always a little bit more complicated than the most complicated thing I know how to do. (laughs) So real problems, it's rare. We carefully curate these examples. So the book has all these great examples that work really well. But in real problems, like these methods never work. So I always have to add something more, like I need to add a measurement error model, or I have missing data problems. I want to allow the treatment effect to vary, but then the interaction is very noisy, so I have to put in some nonlinearity or a stronger prior distribution. Like, it's very rare that these things just work straight out of the box. Which is kind of funny because there's so much in the book, but for new examples, they usually don't work. So usually I am programming things in Stan directly rather than using the pre-written functions because usually there's just one more twist that I have to deal with that I don't, or I'm post-stratifying, I don't know the population distribution, all things like that. It's like a physics book. So you have a physics book and you learn classical mechanics. And actual physicist rarely using Newton's laws to solve things. Even when the physicist is, it usually turns out there's some complexities that they have to deal with. But you have to teach that and they have to learn that. So it's kind of the same thing here.
1: I was going to say it's building block, right? You learn these smaller pieces and then sometimes it's about making those pieces more flexible. And sometimes it's about putting pieces together that they work well together to solve problems. But you have to understand the little pieces first.
2: Yeah, I agree
0: that it's always like that. And actually, it's often I see source of kind of frustration from beginners. You see in examples, in blog posts, in books and so on, you have examples at work out of the box on the paper, or at least you have the feeling that the example worked out of the box, but you don't see there's this huge survival bias where you only <laughs> see the, the last model, the one that fits and runs as it should, you know, and it can be described for beginners to see that I don't understand. I'm doing exactly what they told me in the book, but it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. I don't know what to do next. And so it's related to what you said earlier about you have to teach people actually how to fail and how to think about the case study at hand instead of just learning recipes that you can apply in your real data examples.
2: We struggled a lot in the book with how much realism to have in different chapters, like different ones of us had desires for more or less realism. Because there's this feeling like, I don't like this, we're oversimplifying. But at the same time, if you give all the complexities, then you're not really teaching it so well. In theory, you could say for every method, we have a clean example with fake data, then a clean example with real data, then you discuss where the model doesn't fit. But then the book would be kind of unreadable if it were written in such a mechanical way. So the book is written to be readable, which is, I guess, too bad because people don't read books anymore. But we have this trade-off.
0: Rest assured, at least I am going to read it, Andrew, so... (laughs) I I hope it wasn't in vain. No, but uh, kidding aside, I agree. That's (laughs) a hard line to work on. But because we're already taking quite a bit of your time, you've been very generous with that, so I want to thank you. But I have one last question for you, which is, which other methods, or more appropriately, which other resources do you think listeners should focus on once they read Regression and Other Stories? So I'm guessing you're going to say Volume 2, but also other resources that you have in mind.
2: Well, I recommend the Stan case studies. They're not mostly written by any of us, but they're examples of how to fit Bayesian models in in way for examples where it's not pre-written and you have to kind of construct your own model. So that's kind of one direction.
3: And also Stan manual has a lot of examples But it's also like what to study, there's
2: so many things.
3: And like Andrew said, that in real life, he needs to write the model because there's always something different. So that's why it's also difficult to say what would be the recommendation because it matters so much what they have. Of course, in the next book, we try to get plenty of different examples again that might be useful.
1: Yeah, I'll be interested to see if people keep reading books. Is this a medium that's going to continue in the future? Or is everyone going to learn from journal articles or shiny apps? I don't know. And I've mixed feelings about all of it, right?
0: Or Jupyter Notebooks.
1: Or Jupyter Notebooks, right?
0: I see a trend. I'm more in the Python side of things. Yeah, I see more and more a trend about Jupyter Books, stuff like that, which with the added value that you can update, the book quite uh, quite often with a new version of the packages and so on. But I still love books, honestly. I'm going on vacation next week and I have a lot of stats books on my iPad. So, so please, please keep writing them. <laughs> I-, I know my fiance is going to tell that I shouldn't read that in holidays, but that's holidays for me. So please keep doing that. <laughs> well, usually I ask every guest the same two questions at the end of the show, but here I can't because uh, Aki already came on the show for a one-on-one episode and I I hope Andrew and Jennifer, welcome too. But I have three quick last questions for you in the same idea as usual. So quick questions and quick answer. The first one is who amongst you writes their chapters the fastest?
1: Not me. (laughs) (laughs) That's Andrew. It's not clear he sleeps. He has an extended day that we don't have access. I don't know how he does it, but...
0: Yeah, I'm curious to see maybe a positive correlation between the two questions, because the second one is, who makes
2: the most typos? So is it Andrew too? No, uh, it's me. <laughs> but if we wrote it in Finnish, it would be us. But also yeah. it's nice with Andrew,
3: because then I know that I don't need to stress whether my grammar is correct.
0: Okay, so last one. Each one of you is going to Mars to spread Bayesian knowledge and there is space for two books each to kill time in your rocket. One stats book and one non-stats book. So which ones do you bring with you it can be a jupiter notebook
2: but if we're you're saying it it should be something we haven't yet read because if we already read it it wouldn't really kill time very effectively right so it has to be some book that like you have not
0: yeah i know you can for the sake of your (laughs) question you can say that you forgot (laughs) about this book but you have a good memory of it and you want to read it again
1: if i was wanting to kill time i probably wouldn't bring a stat book (laughs) it would probably be something else i think enough about stats during the day so i would want to use that trip I was thinking I would want to bring something new because I want to read something I haven't read before so it would probably be something in the maybe in the fantasy sci-fi genre particularly if i'm on a rocket ship but but maybe not my, my favorite book in the past five years is constellation of vital phenomena so i also have a penchant for super dark depressing books <laughs> but then i'd also want to sneak like a mini dvd player on and one thing i could see over again is all three seasons of deadwood so oh that's, that's my answer yeah,
0: that's a good answer <laughs> not the exact question but i don't know it it's
3: close
1: a- in spirit
0: <laughs> exactly aki what's about you so, if we are together
3: in that spaceship, I guess I could take then the unfinished Applied Regression <laughs> on a Multilevels book and then finish it with Andrew and for the non stats book. So, if we are in a spaceship, I guess then the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the real one, not the one Adams wrote, but the real one. Yeah. Good choice of that.
0: Okay, Jennifer, Aki, Andrew, it really was special having you here. Until you go to Mars, we are very happy to have you here on Earth with us. I hope listeners enjoyed it as much as I did and that we already have them improve their regression workflow. Again, the book is called Regression and Other Stories. It is filled with plots, with hints about where these methods can fail with applied examples. So go to kebridge.org to buy the book with a 20% discount until October 31st with the promo code goodbaycan2020. As usual, I'll put all the details and links in the show notes. So thank you again, Jennifer, Andrew, and Aki for taking the time and being on this show. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, this was fun. Thank
1: you for having us.
0: Yeah, you bet. Anytime. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's LearnBase. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, fit NC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good bass. You change your predictions after taking information. And if you're thinking I'll be less than a Let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good baby. Change calculations after taking fresh data. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.